This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Bick, and today is Tuesday, Zayin Adar. Zayin Adar is the Yom HaPtira, the day of Moshe Rabbeinu's death. Moshe Rabbeinu, who died outside of Eretz Yisrael, on the wrong side of the river, in a place from which he could see the land, but could not arrive. Today's Shiur is the Shiur, the weekly Shiur in Problems in Medieval Jewish Philosophy, and will be given by myself. Last week, we spoke about two different approaches to the ultimate goal of human life. That of the Rambam, who defines the goal of human life and the goal of the Torah as Yidiyat Hashem, the knowledge of God, and the opinion of Rabbi Chastai Kreskas, who defines both of those, both the goal of human existence and the goal of the Torah, as well as the goal of creation, as being Ahavat Hashem, the love of God and the union with God that love involves and produces. Today I'd like to talk about a different topic, one that is, at least in its initial stages, not directly connected, but as we shall see, I believe, to be intimately connected to that, to that question. And that is the topic of nivua of prophecy. I think on first glance, for most of us, this would seem to be a topic far less central and less important than the topics we have spoken about in the past. I think it's a fact that if one looks at books of Jewish machshava and philosophy and theology for the past three or four hundred years, a very small place would be occupied by discussions of prophecy in Judaism. The reason offhand is obvious. These are books about what we do, what we, what we mean, what is the significance of our lives as Jews. And, well, prophecy doesn't play a very large role there for the simple reason that prophecy, as far as we know, does not exist. It's not a factor in modern-day or present-day Jewish life. So we know that there once were prophets, we know that there are books of prophecy, but we don't tend to list, if I had to list the most important topics for a Jew to talk about. So I know I have to talk about God, you have to talk about Torah, you have to talk about the goal of life, you have to talk about uh, divine providence. But I wouldn't offhand think it's important to talk about prophecy. However, if we look at the literature of the Middle Ages, we discover immediately that these discussions of the nature and the purpose and, and the method of prophecy occupy significant portions of the discussions in the medieval philosophers. Several chapters in the Moan of Uchim, in the Sefer of Avchastai Kreskas, or Hashem, it's one of the six pinot, one of the six central principles of the Torah, in Sefer Kuzari, long and lengthy and significant discussions of prophecy. It's a cardinal principle in the Ramban and receives a lengthy discussion in the Sefer Aikrim and the Sefer Akidat Yitzchak of Rabbi Yitzchak and in Nebar Benel as well. Now why is that so? Well, one reason is a technical reason. A technical, perhaps important reason, but nonetheless a reason which, if we wanted to, we could perhaps avoid. 
One reason is that the books in the Middle Ages were written dogmatically. In other words, many of them set out to explain the truths that are necessary to maintain the Torah, to support the Torah. And obviously, the existence of prophecy is very important because the Torah itself is based on prophecy. If there is no prophecy, if God does not speak to man, then the Torah does not exist as a message of God to man. The Torah is a prime example of prophecy. That's, for instance, the at least ostensible reason of why there is a discussion of prophecy in the second section of Sefer Or Hashem, of Rafasik Veskas, the section which deals with the pinot, the corners of the house. There are six corners of the house that's called Judaism. And Rav Chastai says, these are the principles which, if they are false, the house falls down. So that's a, indeed a reason to you have to include a discussion of prophecy, because basically you're writing what we call today a defense of Judaism. You're discussing Jewish principles not because you're explaining to Jews what they should feel or accomplish, but what they must believe in order to have a rational defense, a logical defense, and understanding of what it is they are doing. While this is undoubtedly true, I don't think it really accounts for the the length and the importance of the discussion in the Middle Ages. A second reason why prophecy has a large part in the discussion in the Middle Ages is because for at least some of the philosophers, but not all, for at least some of the philosophers, prophecy was the, the prime example on a practical level of the goal of Judaism. Although prophecy does not seem to exist in our lives, nonetheless they discussed prophecy because prophecy represented the goal where a Jewish life is heading. And if you don't reach that quite that level, nonetheless it's significant because you're on the path. And this, I think, is a basic, basic, basic question in the philosophers in the Middle Ages. And it's interesting, we'll discuss a, a timeline here, because the general Jewish attitude towards prophecy changed in uh, the discussion of the philosophers that we, we, we consider to be the great medieval philosophers, beginning with Sadrigon until the expulsion from Spain, time of the Babanel and the Sefer HaKedat Yitzchak, the discussion changed in the understanding of the importance of prophecy as being a religious experience changes, I believe, totally, at least among the philosophers. I'm putting on the side the school of thought which we call Kabbalah, but among those who are non-Kabbalah, among the philosophers, there is a distinct change over the years. What does that change consist of? I'll give an example. The Rambam introduces his discussion of Nevu'ah, of prophecy, by saying there are three possible opinions. Well, there are three opinions, the three opinions which exist. One, which he calls the opinion of the philosophers, says that anyone who prepares himself properly and has the right talents, the right abilities necessary for prophecy, will prophesize. He will be a prophet. In other words, the ability to prophesize is a natural human ability. It may have to be developed, but nonetheless, it's based on, on human traits, which you may or may not have. Uh, to give the example that the Rambam is thinking of, you need a certain amount of intelligence, you need a certain amount of imagination. And those are the two ingredients for prophecy. And you have to train it. Just like in order to achieve wisdom, you need to have intelligence, you also need to train it. You need to have a certain amount of discipline, you need, you need to learn how to use your intelligence. 
But nonetheless, when we understand something, when we learn geometry, it's based on the training and the abilities that we have. And anyone who has those abilities and trains them will indeed understand geometry. That's the opinion of the philosophers concerning prophecy. There's another opinion, Rambam says, which says the exact opposite. That prophecy is simply a gift of God. It makes no difference what you've trained. There is no human training which will lead to prophecy. Because it's not basically a human trait. It's not a human accomplishment. It's simply God intruding into your mind or into your lives. And if it makes no difference what you've done previously, it's all an act of God. And then there's the third opinion, which Ramam says is the opinion of the Torah, which the Ramam says explicitly is the first opinion. It's exactly the first opinion. It's the opinion of the philosophers with one proviso. That if God chooses to prevent a natural philosopher, a natural prophesier, a natural prophet from achieving prophecy, he can and will do so. But that will be like a miracle. Just like other miracles. God can always change the laws of nature. He can also change the laws of nature of the prophecy training. You've gone to prophecy school. You were accepted because you had the right marks in, in, in preparatory school. They had the best training. You don't achieve it because God thinks you're not worthy for some reason, morally or some other reason. Therefore, God prevents it the way he prevents a fire from burning a piece of paper or prevents the lions from eating from eating Daniel. On this comment of the Rambam, the Abarbanel, who lived 200 years later, the Abarbanel uh, introduces a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy retort. In general, the Abarbanel on Monabuchim is indeed a commentary. He explains things. That's his main purpose. Occasionally he explains things critically. Usually he explains things admiringly. Here, he adheres, I believe, I'm not sure, I believe it's the longest comment of the Babanel to the Magan a lengthy, lengthy attack, vehement attack, on this position of the Rambam. And basically what the Babanel says is that there is no possible training which would lead one to become a prophet. The Word of God is greater than any possible humanly trained or human ability to contain and therefore, there is no difference whatsoever between a wise or virtuous or well-trained person prophesying and a fool prophesying, or an animal prophesying. For instance, Chamoroshel Bil'am, Bil'am's donkey, who spoke words that were the words of God. And basically, the Bible now says, at that moment, Bil'am's Chamor was indeed a prophet like any other prophet. The Babanel's opinion appears to be very extreme, but he, he presents it with such vehemence. He says what the Rambam is doing is completely overturning the meaning of prophecy. Now one question here is whether or not prophecy is a, initiated by people or is initiated by God. But I think there's another, there's another topic that stands at behind the Abarmanel's uh, attack, the Abarmanel's retort, the Abarmanel's comment. And that has to do with whether or not we view prophecy as an achievement, as something to which our lives, our spiritual lives, should attempt to view as a goal. Do we aspire to become prophets? Very, very simple question. Do you aspire by acting in the proper manner, whether it's intellectual training or religious training, that makes no difference. But whether or not prophecy is an end result of the life 
that has been lived in the proper manner. And the Bible is basically saying no. It has nothing to do with with what you've done till now. It's simply something which happens. And the Rambam is saying the exact opposite. Now, of course, the Rambam's version of of prophecy, and this is not really our topic, is very close to the Rambam's version of wisdom. The Rambam is not here contradicting what he said when he said that the goal of life is Yidiyat Hashem. Because prophecy is another form of Yidiyat Hashem. There's, there's, there's the, the purely rational, philosophic knowledge, and there's also knowledge that's achieved through prophecy, but in the end you're talking about knowledge. Knowledge of things that otherwise you wouldn't know. And therefore, the same human goal, the same human aspiration to know, to know the truth, to know God, is expressed both in wisdom, intelligence, philosophy, and in prophecy. The philosopher and the prophet have different uh, uh, means of achieving slightly different goals, but both of them belong to the same, definitely to the same family. Now, you can disagree with the Ramam about his description of the nature of, of prophecy and yet share the basic idea that prophecy is the goal of a religious life. If you've chosen a different picture of religious life to begin with, and nonetheless include prophecy as its goal, so prophecy will look different. So for instance, in the Sefer HaKuzavi, very, very different attitude towards, towards life and towards religion and towards prophecy than that of the Rambam. And yet, nonetheless, I think on this point, the Sefer HaKuzavi is very similar to the Rambam. A, a well-lived religious life has as its final goal, this is essential to the Kuzari, a state which is very much akin, is either prophecy exactly as it's described in, in the Nevi'im or, or something very, very similar to it. Ha'inyan, ha'inyan ha'eloki of the Sefer Kuzari means that one's mind is communing with God and that's what the religious life is all about. Now it's true, the question I raised before and as to who initiates it so indeed, the Kusari is makes a point of saying that although prophecy is a human trait developed by certain practices, namely following the Torah, however, it has to be initiated by God because the Kusari does think that prophecy is a conversation; it's God speaking to one. You can't you can't just grab God's word out of the air, and and so it's true that. It's on one hand a faculty of man, which is also called Ha'inyan Eloki by the Kuzari, something which developed by leading a life of Kedusha. However, it has to be initiated by God. So that, that's an important point as to who initiates. The Bible presents a picture as though prophecy, like wisdom, is simply truth. The truth is out there. You have to have the right mechanism to grab it. You have to have a, a kind of a radio receiver. And if you develop the prophetic radio receiver, you will catch the prophetic radio waves. That's not possible in the Kuzavi. But that, that I think is a side point. The important point here is that communion with God by hearing His voice, hearing the truth that comes from the meeting of man and God as more or less described by Yeshayahu and Yemiyahu and Eliyahu and Yecheskel and Moshe Rabbeinu that is the basic goal of of the religious life. Now, there's another question which we've just sort of mentioned, 
which which in fact is an important question, is is prophecy primarily intellectual content, as it is for the Rambam? Or is it somehow super-rational content? Is, is the experience central or the content delivered through the experience central? It's a very, very important question. Most of the prophets that we read in the VM have content. But you also have the idea that perhaps prophecy is simply an experience of, of feeling a certain closeness with God, which maybe you couldn't later on put into words and write down in a book. That's closer to the opinion of the Kuzari. It includes words as well, but, but it, it's, it's more than merely the words. It's a very, very important question as well. But again, both of them still share this idea that you work at Torah, you work at mitzvot, you develop your personality, and you become closer and closer to achieving a prophetic state. In order to bridge the question as to, but we don't ever achieve prophecy, apparently, since the end of Bayit Rishon and the end of the prophetic books. So, you have to then expand the notion of prophecy to beyond traditional prophecies. The Bible, for instance, has ten, ten levels of prophecy. The bottom which, the bottom, the bottom levels, are in fact achievable. They're called Ruach HaKodesh. They mean basically some kind of inspiration. They're not, they're not classic prophecy on the Ishayahu Yumayahu level. And the same thing is true of, of, of the Sefer Kuzavi, who, who doesn't so much talk about prophecy. Prophecy is an example of Ha'inyan Ha'elokiye, a, a, the certain divine spiritual ability which, which, a person, which a person has. We find that as the years go by, specifically in Christian Spain, we find developing from one philosopher to another a, 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 an attitude towards prophecy which basically takes it off this pedestal, this central pedestal, of being the goal of the religious life. If in the Ramban, who, who talks mostly about the Vekut, but he combines the Vekut with prophecy, it is still true that it's one of the central goals of human life. In the 15th and 14th century, you find a, a steady erosion of that idea. The Abhavanel, who I quoted in the beginning, is the end of this process. The Abhavanel is basically the last of the great Spanish Jewish philosophers. And what the Abhavanel is saying is that it could be a marvelous and, and incredible thing to have prophecy, but it indicates nothing about you. And it's inconceivable that the Abhavanel is saying that the goal of spiritual life has nothing to do with, with what you do. It's not, it's not an accomplishment of, of Torah and mitzvot and, and spirituality and, and piety. He's saying if God has to, wants something to be known, He will make it known. And He can choose you or you or Afrag or Bilam's Hamor or Bilam. It makes no difference because God is simply using someone as a messenger to convey, to convey content. Going back a hundred years, in his definition, he gives a definition of prophecy. He didn't have to, as I pointed out. Technically, he's talking about prophecy only to indicate that it serves as the basis for the Torah. But Rav Chastai gives a definition of prophecy, a long and complicated definition, which I will not quote, but what he says is that what is prophecy? It's content of knowledge, madai, Madai in the medieval sense, not, not scientific, but being miyeda. It's knowledge imparted to a man who did not have that knowledge in order to help him achieve the, a better way, 
to correct his ways or that he should correct other people's ways. In other words, what Chasta is saying that one, it's content and not an experience. Two, he says, it's content for he who doesn't know that he should know something. And the purpose is that through this knowledge he can fix something. Liyasher oto. He can, he can straighten either his ways or someone else's ways. In other words, it's purely utilitarian. It's pragmatic. God has something which He wants to tell you because He wants you to know it. It's important for you to know it. You'll use this knowledge to achieve a better state. The knowledge is not the better state. But through this knowledge, you will achieve a better state. And that's why God tells it to you. Obviously, classic prophecy in the ancient time really does meet this mold. Almost all prophecy is telling people who are sitting that they should do tshuva. The prophets come to tell us to observe the Torah. And they tell us we should better our ways. And if they tell us we're doing bad things, and they warn us that if you go, if you do this, something bad will happen, etc., etc., etc. But what Rav is doing here is he's saying it's not that I wish to achieve prophecy. I wish to achieve something else, which is, in this expression, he calls Haisharat Dako, to make your way straight. You wish to achieve the goal of human life. We know what that is already because we've read Rav Chastai. It's Avat Hashem. Prophecy may help you achieve that goal. And if it will, then God will, will give you or someone near you prophecy to, to help you along the way. Rav then goes on and explains that you know, prophecy is basically the same thing as chokhmah of others. God, in order to help me, might send a wise person to give me advice. Or he might send a prophet to give me advice. From my point of view, it's the same thing. I assume the experience of the prophet and the experience of the wise man is different, but from my point of view, he who is getting the advice, there's no difference whatsoever. I meet a my teacher, my master, the mashkir and the yeshiva, and, and he's wiser than me, and he tells me something which can help me. Or I might have met a prophet who was sent by God specifically to tell me something which might help me or which might help him. What he's basically doing is He's ignoring. Mephastai is denigrating the experience of prophecy and looking only at the utilitarian motivation for prophecy. This is taken one step further in a book written some 40 years later, Sefer HaIkrim, of Rabbi Yosef Albo, who doesn't, I, I tricked you before, he doesn't actually have a section on prophecy. What he does is he has a long section called Torah Menashemayim. That's one of the three great founding principles of Judaism. That the Torah is given by God from heaven at Sinai. Under that discussion, he has a long discussion of what is prophecy. Torah is a classic example of prophecy. In Rav Yosef Albo, what I said in the beginning of this year is exactly true. The only reason to discuss prophecy is in order to support the Torah. But Torah is what is important here. Now we say the Torah is important, Torah is prophecy, but it's not the experience of prophecy. I don't receive the Torah from God in my head. I, I get it from a book and from my teachers. But it's the same thing as the original generation, or even Moshe Rabbeinu who got the Torah. Because what's important is the content. And the content doesn't need to be transferred by prophecy once it's been given once. Afterwards it's transferred by teaching, or by reading, or by some other method. And the experience of prophecy the closeness and the communion with God is not in itself an important an important stage anymore. And the final 
A final example of this is a book written another 40-50 years later, the comment of the Abhavanel, who simply says, you can prophesize a stone, God could prophesize a stone. The experience of prophecy indicates nothing about the level of the person. But perhaps like Kreskas, who isn't willing to go as far as the Abhavanel, uh, to him it's, it's apparent that prophets must be greater people than non-prophets. So what he basically does is he changes the, the equation. He says, if you've achieved the goal of human life, if you are an Ohev Hashem, if you love God and God loves you, you have a loving relationship with God, then it makes sense that God should prophesize you. He'll, he'll talk to you. Prophecy isn't the content of the love. It's something which simply accompanies it. God speaks to his friends. Why should God prophesize or go out to help those who are far from him in any event. The goal of prophecy is to bring a person closer to God. So he who is on that path will also receive this aid. It's one method of aiding people, as is Hashkacha in general. God does all sorts of things. He gave us the Torah to bring us close to him. He sends us wise men, teachers, and, and other wise men in Israel to bring us closer to him. He might send us prophets to bring us closer to him. He might prophesize you yourself to bring you closer to him. It's a it's a indication that you're on the right path, that you're close enough to God, that God wants you to bring you even closer. Those who are far from God, in other words, those who are evil or, or, or perhaps foolish, will probably not receive prophecy because there's no there's no real purpose in it. So the equation here has been has been inverted. It's not that one achieves prophecy and thereby achieves the goal. One achieves the goal and therefore it makes sense that one should have prophecy. On the other hand, again, if there's no need, if there's no particular knowledge which you are lacking, which you need to know in order to better your ways, and there's no reason for God to prophesy, to prophesize for you. And I suspect that what Rav Chastai and Sefer Ikrim and the Babanel would say when asked, why is there no prophecy today? They would say, because there really is no particular need. We have the Torah, which is the ultimate prophecy. It's in front of us. It's explained. And we have to do that. And if we would invest ourselves more in learning Torah and understanding Torah, we would get just as far as if there would be some momentary prophecy to you or to me or to somebody else in these in these times. So what we have here is a is a process whereby the goal of human life is transferred from direct communion with God to something else. Now Avat Hashem of Abchasta is also a kind of communion. But it's one, it's not an intellectual communion, and and it, it it's not expressed in the thing that's called nevuah. Nevuah doesn't need to exist today for me to nonetheless achieve the goal of human life. As a side point, I would like to suggest that there, this in this particular case, there is an outside influence in a negative sense. Um, you're dealing with Spanish Jewry. Spanish Jewry in the 13th, especially in the 14th and then the 15th century, faces a continual crisis of direct attack and pressure and propaganda from the Christian environment. Ultimately expressed in the expulsion of, of 1492, but uh, Rav Chasta experienced the, basically the pogroms. I don't know how to say pogrom in Spanish, but the pogroms of 1391, 100 years earlier, in which his son was killed. And even before that, and definitely after that, the uh, phenomenon of, of, of Christian sermons in, in Jewish synagogues takes place, there's a there's a, 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 a surge of conversion from Judaism to Christianity all through this period, way before the expulsion. And, and the Jews are under attack, and they're basically under attack, among other things, by the fact that Christianity is a living religion which claims to have the Spirit of God expressed in it, 
And there are prophets and, and, and ecstatics in Christianity, and Judaism is presented as being a fossil religion. You have a Torah that's 3,000 years old, and nothing's happened since. And there are a number of ways you can answer that. You could say that, no, we also have prophets. There is a living uh, a gush of prophecy. And I think the Kabbalah goes, some parts of the Kabbalah go on that course. But the other possible answer is to say, so what? Exactly. We have the Torah, and it's, at that point, 2,000 years old. And that's with more, and it's more living. It, it, has, it tells us more, and it gives us more, and it brings us closer to God than the ecstatic experience which we associate with the person being overcome by the Spirit of God falling on him and, and speaking in funny tongues and, 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 and falling on the floor and rolling, etc., 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 which Christians do so well. All right, I'm putting this in parentheses. I think this is part of the influence here, since we do see a, a distinct historical pattern. But the question itself, of course, is independent of, of, of history. The question itself is, what does it mean to be a prophet? Is it a utilitarian tool that God uses in His graciousness and love of man and goodness to help man along? Or is it a goal that man seeks, not because he needs some information, but because he seeks God, he seeks God himself? And that's a difference which is essential and integral to the discussion throughout the Middle Ages. I've, I've tried to exhibit it in a number of different Jewish philosophers, including several who are on the same camp in this question, but totally different in their attitudes towards the internal workings of, of prophecy, in order to uh, illustrate what I think is a crucial point for us. What is our attitude toward today, where we have really lowered prophecy below the horizons of our, of our concerns? What is our attitude towards this particular element within our understanding of Judaism as a whole. In, I would say, the last few years, the influence of Rav Kook and one or two other thinkers, prophecy has in fact made a comeback. Prophecy in the Rambam or the Kuzari sense, the very fact that the Kuzari has been rediscovered in the 20th century, has contributed to this. And uh, especially in Torah Rav Kook, there's been a new emphasis on Nivu'ah, something similar to Nivu'ah, as being something to which we aspire, part of the return to Eretz Yisrael, the land where Nebuah can take place, has brought Nebuah back as being, among certain kinds of thought, a central motif and a desired goal of, of Jewish life. You have been listening to the Shur on problems in medieval Jewish philosophy, and now for today's Halakha Yomit. The Gemara in uh, Barachot says... He who establishes a place, he, he makes one single place for his tefillah, so the God of Abraham will help him. When he dies, he said that he is like a student, a disciple of Avraham Avinu. For Avraham Avinu made, established a place for his davening, Avraham returned in the morning when he went to see what was happening with stone to the place in which he stood, and stood means daven. He returned to the same place to daven again. He had a fixed place for his davening. Shulchan Aruch paskans this lalacha, yikbam makom letfilato. This is a process which takes place a number of times in Masechet Brachot, where the Gemara praises a certain situation, it becomes halacha. 
Here the Gemara says, if you do it, it's a wonderful thing. God will help you. Shulchan Aruch says, Yikba makom letfilato. person should establish a one place which which you will not change unless there is great need. What's more, the Shulchan Aruch says, not only does that mean you should have a given Beit Knesset, but even in the Beit Knesset, you should have a given place. In other words, two different halachot. One is you should have a set shul, not wander around each time go visiting a different shul. You should have a shul where you dive in. And two, in shul you should have a place. The Gemara doesn't say that. The Gemara says, Yikba Makom. How does the Machaba know that you, there's the two different halachot, a shul and a place? This is based on the Rush. The Rush says that aside from having a given Beit Knesset, one has to have a given place. And he says, because this is in the Yerushalmi. Yerushalmi says, Tzarich liyached lo makom b'beit ha-knesset. You have to uh, establish a place in the Beit ha-knesset. The Talmud Rabbeinu Yonah deny. Rabbeinu Yonah denies this. In fact, he denies the Yerushalmi exists. Rabbeinu Yonah quotes a different Yerushalmi which says the exact opposite. Kol akoveya makom l'tfilato b'beito l'hitpalel k'ilu hikifa mechitzot shal bazel. Says the Yerushalmi is talking about not in shul. In shul, the whole shul is a makom tefillah. What difference does it make where one davens, says Rabbeinu Yonah. But if you're davening in your house, because you couldn't go to shul for some reason, so there, a house is not a makom tefillah. And if you're losing out on the, the quality of having a place for tefillah, so then you should make one corner in your house where every time you daven in the house, you daven in that place. That is a different halacha. That's basically a third halacha. One halacha is you should have a shul. The Rosh says, in shul you should have a place. Rabbi Yonah says, in shul you don't need a place. But in your house, if you dive in there, you should have a place. If you dive in at home, you have a corner, one corner in your living room, one corner downstairs in the basement. That's the place where you dive in. These last two halachot are, are alternative. The question is, what does the Yushami actually say? There are apparently different gifts of the Yushami. Our gifts of the Yushami is different than both of those uh, 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 gifts of it's hard to say what the Yushami is talking about according to us. Yushami says, That's apparently the statement that the Rebbe is quoting. It doesn't say you make a single place. It says, He who dams in his house is as though he was surrounded by a wall of iron. It's a strange gisa, but that's the, that's the gisa that we have. And uh, so the question is, what are the Yushami really saying? Whether one should pass like Yushami. Interestingly enough, most pass can pass in all three halachot. Although Rabbi Yonah clearly was disagreeing with the Rosh, and the Rosh has no knowledge of Rabbi Yonah's halacha, but halacha uh, lemaisa, the Machaber, as I said, passing in the first two, you should have a shul, two, you should have a place in shul, and the post can bring Rabbi Yonah as well, not as disagreeing, but as adding, if you daven in your house, you should have a place where you daven. The idea being, and this I think is agreed upon all of them, is that tefillah requires a special place. It might sound like a nice idea to daven everywhere, but Chazal believed that tefillah is out of the ordinary. It's also out of the regular course of life. And one should daven b'makom tefillah, which is what a Beit Knesset is in the first place. That's how we talked about it in the past, last week. The Bayana says, in a shul you don't need a special place. The shul is a special place, but it could be that each individual, and this is the halacha that the Rosh is saying, even in a makom shu tefillah, but you need makom tefillah shel Yankel Shmero. You need a makom tefillah of Yosef Dov. Every person has to have his makom tefillah. 
And the same thing would be true if, for some reason, one davens outside of the shul, but you need a place of tefillah, and therefore you should make your own place of tefillah, even outside, even outside of shul. Tefillah is a meeting between myself and God, and it doesn't take place in the field. It takes place in a, in a, in a location which has become special and assigned the purpose, the meeting place, between man and God. That's all for today. Tomorrow we'll be back with the Shir, the weekly mitzvah of Rav Tavori. Rav Tavori didn't give the Shir last week, so we're eagerly expecting his Shir this week. Until then, Kol Tov, the best. This has been Ezra Bik in Gush Etzion, in Yeshivat Haaretzion, speaking for KMTT. Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah. Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.